The podcast of this local government meeting is brought to you by Michigan Radio. For more coverage of local government meetings and to find out how you can support this service, go to michiganradio.org. Fiscal year 24 budget hearings. Madam Clerk, will you please call the roll? Good morning, Council Member Scott Benson. Council Member Fred Durhall III. Present. Council Member Letitia Johnson. Present. Council Member Gabriela Santiago Romero. Council Member Mary Waters. Present. Council Member Angela Whitfield Calloway. Present. Council Member Coleman Young II. Council President Pro Tem James Tate. Here. Council President Mary Sheffield. Present. Madam President, you have. Madam President, you have a quorum. All right. Thank you. There being a quorum, we are now in session. Councilmember Santiago Ramiro did indicate that she will not be present today. And so her uh, absence is accepted. With that being said, we have our uh, first hearing for today, the Department of Housing and Revitalization. And I will turn it over to you all, to the department. Just press your microphone. Uh, good morning, Julie Schneider, Director of the Housing and Revitalization Department. Good morning, Val Miller, Chief of Staff, uh, HRD. Good morning, Eunice Braxton Williams, Agency CFO. All right. Okay. Uh, good morning, and um, we're happy to be here today to present the proposed budget for the Housing and Revitalization Department for fiscal year 23-24. Uh, the Housing and Revitalization Department's mission is to sustain and grow neighborhoods that are inclusive of affordable housing opportunities and economic opportunities for all. I've been the director of the department for two years and have had the, the, the pleasure of representing over 200 people who work tirelessly every day to fulfill this mission. Uh, we are comprised of five units, five divisions within the department. Uh, we've recently completed some uh, restructuring, making sure that these divisions are really set to provide services around um, direct services as well as investments in and community development activities, as well as housing and public facilities, as well as make sure that we have the administrative and operational support necessary to make sure we're fulfilling our mission and making sure that we're staying in compliance with the many federal grants that we're responsible for um, administering. So just at a high level um, to provide an overview of the Housing and Revitalization Department's budget, um, you can see that we are uh, uh, really supported predominantly by federal grants. Uh, these are federal grants uh, that come from the housing, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and they are the amounts you see on the screen are our, our annual allocations that come from the federal government. In addition to those dollars, we have about $19 million in the proposed budget from the general fund. All told, our budget from the general fund as well as our annual allocations from HUD is about $66 million for FY23-24. Uh, additionally, and this is something I want to, I'll highlight throughout the presentation, is that because we're uh, an administrator of federal funds, federal housing and urban development funds that have 
many different spending guidelines and requirements. Um, we are also administering about $300 million in other funds that are not part of the 23-24 budget or 24-25. Those are things that we've received through competitive allocations, through competitive grants, um, and I'll, I'll go through them as we're going through the presentation so that that larger picture and context is presented as well as the annual budget. Um, so I know that uh, I've looked through the community engagement and community participation items from the budget. And so through this presentation, I'll go through some of those key items that were commonly um, highlighted by residents in those discussions. So first is affordable housing development and preservation. This is one of the, the cornerstones of the work of the Housing and Revitalization Department. Um, we work to provide pre-development services as well as invest in housing um, and help to guide affordable housing developers through the city processes as well as our um, help them get, get funded. Um, in all, we've preserved or created about um, 9,500 units of affordable housing since 2015 and really placed a priority on creating and preserving house, housing for persons of all incomes, especially for housing, housing for per persons from zero to 50% of the area median income, as you can see on this slide. So in 23-24, especially in uh, 2023, we're expecting quite a substantial year for affordable housing development. Uh, coming through the pandemic, we certainly saw slowdowns as costs increased um, upwards of 30%. And we're really starting to see those projects be able to move. Um, we see that happening through uh, several different sources. In the 23-24 budget, there's $13.1 million proposed through several sources, including community development block grant funds. The amount proposed for community development block grant funds is an increase over previous years, reflecting the need for both additional affordable housing as well as increased costs. The home is the amount of funding that is allocated to us from HUD and through Congress. And then the trust fund amount is based on the percentage of land sales uh, from the, the previous fiscal year. Additionally, we have about $83.3 million in additional grant funding through such sources as the Competitive Choice Neighborhoods Grant, Home ARP, which is an allocation that we received from HUD. Uh, we still have some funding from the CDBG through the CARES Act, um, $11 million through ARPA, and then we'll also be seeking to um, allocate $31 million additionally in ARPA through projects that we would look to close um, this year. Um, in addition to affordable housing, one of the, the uh, one, you can put it one or two, is to the uh, frequency of the communication we receive about home repair as well as affordable housing. But home repair is a critical part of what we do. We've recently restructured so that all housing repair, all home repair is under one division within the city, which I think will allow us to really see increases in production as we increase efficiencies within the department. Um, in 2022, we completed over 500 home repairs across a various set of programs and are looking to uh, nearly double that in, 23, in 2023, um, looking to do that through a few sources. In the budget, you'll see requests for a grant, a, a grant for the lead hazard home repair, which we receive competitive allocations from HUD for lead hazard 
um, grants and lead hazard removal, we're bound by our grant, um, grant agreements with HUD to match some of those dollars. Additionally, we're requesting $1 million in 0% interest home repair. We're doing so because um, we're looking to transition that program within the, the next year. And so this is a this is a reduction in what you've seen in previous years, but we believe between the balance that we have and this, we'll be able to transition this program into a, a program that's more responsive to the needs of home repair in 2023 and beyond. In addition to these dollars, uh, we have one million or $123 million additionally for home repair. This is through a variety of sources. ARPA, um, the, the Renew program, we have a balance of nearly $7 million in the senior repair program that we're uh, working to expend, several lead programs, and then you see some um, additional ARPA programs, and then the CDBGDR basement backup protection program, which will be available this year. Uh, on this slide, I'm trying to show the, the various timelines that we have for expending these funds. Um, certainly, home repair is a major need in this city, um, but we're trying to balance that need with the um, uh, spending timelines that we have for these funds, both based on the required spending timelines and the, the production capacity that, that we have in the city. You see that we have a substantial number of funds, especially in the 23, 24, and 25 years, as we get through those funds, especially on senior repair, you'll look to, we'll, we'll look to see um, changes in our requests in those future years to really support the ongoing continuation of these programs. We'll also look to apply for other funds through the, the federal government as we have with those lead programs, those three lead programs that you see on the screen. Of course, um, Investing in housing, both home repair and affordable housing is important, but also is making sure that people are able to stay stably in their homes or um, achieve opportunities such as home as uh, ownership. We've made major investments in increasing our work in housing stability in the past few years, uh, starting with rental assistance. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were working to coordinate several stakeholders to make sure that we were coordinating the various moratoriums that were in place, as well as then when funding came available for rental assistance. And then homelessness solutions is a core part of our business. I want to particularly highlight the work that that we did, that we funded, to make sure that persons experiencing homelessness that contracted COVID-19 had a, had a safe space to be in. We served over 1,800 people since the pandemic, um, certainly preventing the wider spread of the virus, but also saving lives as well. Um, so in 2023, 20, 24, we're looking to provide $5.1 in our annual budget. sounds like your microphone may have went out. Um, Ms. Blessman, can you hear us online still? Uh, Director Schneider, when she's speaking. I can hear you, Council President. I cannot hear Director Schneider. Okay. Um, let's see if we will have IT uh, looking to it in the interim, though. Let's see if another microphone works. Sorry about that, Director. <laughs> Uh-oh, the other two just went out, looks like. Or did you all turn them off? Oh, okay. What is going on here? Let's try this one. Can you hear me? No, you cannot. Oh, there it is, yep. 
Because <laughs> if I don't get them, then I'm going to need them. <laughs> Thank you. Can you hear, still hear me? It's working. You might just need to speak up a little bit louder, but All right, the yeah. microphone is on. Okay. Uh, thank you. So uh, <laughs> returning to where we are at with Housing Stability Services, so looking to invest $5.1 in homeless public service this, uh, this coming fiscal year through appropriations received through HUD, as well as supplement that with $46.9 in funding through both the American Rescue Plan Act, um, as well as uh, the home ARP allocation, which was a direct allocation that we received for uh, the home program. In this, we'll be providing down payment assistance programs, property tax foreclosure, as well as tenant, tenant placement services, and helping uh, homeowners or renters looking to um, stabilize their housing through housing counseling services through the Detroit Housing Network. Um, so I've talked a lot about housing. Of course, a major part of our work is also community and neighborhood development. So we support this work through the Neighborhood Beautification Grants and Neighborhood Opportunity Fund. Um, we've seen um, the Neighborhood Opportunity Fund is a program that is a longstanding program that many organizations rely on to support their activities. In this past year, we debuted the Neighborhood Beautification Grant Program, which uh, we've seen great success in not only both response from people being interested in the program, but also uh, just the, the impact on neighborhoods has been uh, very exciting and something we're uh, looking forward to continuing in the future years. Uh, so looking to support this work in the budget with $5 million, as well as additional grant funding coming from the American Rescue Plan Act and then a, a new contractor development uh, program to help uh, grow our contractors within the city of Detroit. That is, that is pending um, some future council action, but wanted to highlight it as a program we're really excited about building. Um, so I, I highlighted some of the things that are things that we um, certainly have seen in the community engagement process. Just want to highlight a couple other things quickly uh, that are um, items that I know the public is interested in as well as um, uh, are important things to know. So first I mentioned down payment assistance. That's a program that's going to uh, expect it to launch in April. The Office of Innovative Affairs and Economic Inclusion, last year we received fund, some funding to do a strategic plan. We're in the process of identifying a vendor for that work. Also in the process of releasing a accessibility study and fair housing awareness work for with an RFP to be released in, in April, as well as expanding our fair housing awareness work um, as well, and then lastly, our public facilities rehabilitation program. Uh, we have $1 million in this budget. We are modifying that program to make sure that organizations have additional supports, and that first RFP for that new program will be available uh, in March as well. That concludes my formal comments for the, the budget proposal today. All right, thank you, Director Schneider. Any additional comments from anyone? All right, so I will uh, start with the first round of questions, and I do have several questions that we will submit in writing. I'm also looking forward to seeing the responses to LPD's questions. Some of mine were very similar. 
Um, as it relates to home repair, I, I first just want to say I am very proud of the progress that we've made. I remember when I first got to city council, uh, we used to fight every single budget just to get five to six million dollars uh, allocated to, for home repair. So to see that we are roughly at around 40 million uh, or more uh, is a great thing. Um, the one issue that I hear though now through ARPA is that there there's limited uses for it. So it's just for roof and windows. And I know a lot of seniors need additional repairs and some of them are in fact opting in to go back to the traditional senior home repair program. So can you speak a little bit to how many residents have opted out of that program and want to remain on the traditional senior home repair wait list? Uh, and I'm just curious how many um, homes the 6.9 is projected to serve as well to address that need um, I, I will I will start and Ms. Sigmantovich who's uh, joined okay. by the microphone can help fill in some of the um, details so the senior home emergency repair program continues to operate and that does offer a broader set of um, types of repairs dealing with, with dealing with emergencies will continue to operate that program. The $6.9 million gets us about 70% or so through our existing waiting list. We'll look to request funding as the people who are further down on that waiting list in future years come up towards the top so we can make sure to, to get um, through that list. Um, and then for the questions about Renew Detroit and um, I'll, I'll defer to the Sigma Touch. Thank you. Um, uh, to the chair, so uh, um, for the, the opt-outs, so we really have designed this program to date, um, as you're seeing, to, to, to drive volume. We know that there's a home repair crisis that we are trying to respond to and start to actually make a dent in it. Um, the way for us to move that fast into almost double repairs year over year is by limiting the repairs that we do. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I think that's why you're seeing the ARPA dollars are limited, but also why you're seeing that we're continuing to fund and work through other programs simultaneously so that we're hoping to meet both needs. How do we both expand um, but find multiple avenues to provide different types of repairs? Um, so that that is how we are increasing the volume. Um, each repair you add on, you are you would potentially reduce the amount that right. you can deliver. Um, so to to speak on the um, the opt out question specifically, um, as you know, when we were um, putting that program out, it was important to us to prioritize those on the existing senior emergency home repair wait list mm -hmm. um, and give them that option. Um, so that was really part of that program design, understanding that you may have been on that wait list for something completely different than a roof. Mm -hmm. um, and, and in which case we want to make sure we're, we're providing that. So out of our first set of conditional selections, there were a little bit over 300 um, that were selected that also are on the senior emergency home repair wait list. Um, <clears throat> we moved through a pilot of about a little less than 200 in the fall. Um, and I, I want to say that uh, maybe 70 of those 300 were, were in that group and probably about 30 opted to stay in senior emergency home repair. Okay. Um, so you're still seeing the majority of those that are staying in it and, and choosing to get the roof because that is what they need. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe the, the rate of um, opt-out for the, the remainder that we'll be serving has been lower. I don't have that, so I'll be sure to get that exact number. Okay. Yeah, I just, I just want clarity on it. And I, again, I understand taking care of emergency needs 
first and foremost, and our going in the community, we all see that roofs and porches uh, and windows are primarily the main concern, but there are a lot of residents as well who need additional um, request and we hear a lot of callers come in about how can we expand the services that home repair provides and at one point in time there was a lot of different things and options that residents could actually benefit from uh, from the home repair program so I just wanted to be clear also on that regarding um, accessibility and um, allowing seniors to opt in for accessibility repairs throughout their house is that an option as well with possibly expanding the use of the Renew Detroit program as well So, so I want to highlight one of the new programs that we have through the American Rescue Plan, which is an accessibility-focused repair program. I believe we have a contract, I believe we have a contract approved for that, and so we'll be working with, we've already been working with our um, disability advocates and, and others that connect, that can make sure that we're connecting to persons with, with accessibility, because we want to make sure that we're uh, have a it'll be our first time that we've had a repair program that starts with how do we make accessibility improvements we'll also look to provide emergency repairs as part of that program so that we don't make it so that a household can get into back mm -hmm. into their home or easily transverse it but also but then leave them with a, a roof that needs repairs so uh, we'll include that as a part of that program that'll be launched um, likely in I'd say the summer of this year Okay. All right. Thank you. And um, definitely have more questions regarding home repair, but we will make sure that we put them in writing. Uh, the second question is, of course, around more of a comment and a question regarding the Affordable Housing and Preservation Fund. And I just have to say that, you know, when we talk about affordable housing, this fund uh, really addresses the, the true desire and need for Detroiters. 70% of the fund uh, is allocated to households that are earning 30% AMI or below. Um, and so, and it was really a community-driven fund, right? It took years to come to. Uh, and I see that there is a 55% reduction in this particular fund. And so I just wanted you to speak to why that reduction has taken place and the impact that it will have on some of the proposed developments that we are looking for this fund uh, to uh, help with. Um, to the chair, so the... The trust fund or the Affordable Housing Development Preservation Fund, as it's referred to in the ordinance, is one that the, the first source of budget is now 40%. It was increased from 20% in mm -hmm. 2022, but 40% of commercial land sales from the previous year. So when we're coming to you at this at this time, what, what the budget that you're seeing is reflecting is what 40% now of those previous land sales was. So in addition to those dollars, we have, I mentioned the Home ARP program. The Home ARP program is a new one-time program where we have $16 million dedicated to providing housing for persons at household, at incomes of no more than 30% of, of area median income. So where um, those funds that we expect to, to start using this year have to be used for uh, a population, the same population, except that where the trust fund is 70% have to be used for 30% and lower. The home ARP program has to be 100% has to of of the funds are to be used for households at 30% and lower of area median income. So we think that even though the 
trust fund is reducing, we're supplementing it with uh, increased funding through the Home ARP program. Got you. And that's a separate uh, line item within the budget or? It is, is because it's a, uh, excuse me, mm -hmm. um, to, the, to the chair, um, because it's a one-time allocation, it is one of those, it doesn't sit in our, you don't see it in our annual budget. We came to council to appropriate it, uh, accept and appropriate several months ago. And so the overall spending, the overall program is $26 million. We have to use those dollars to both construct affordable housing for households at 30% and lower, to improve services for um, around uh, homelessness services, and, and then also uh, we'll be using some of it to um, uh, acquire or renovate a shelter. But $16 million of the 26 is dedicated to housing construction. Got you. All right. Thank you. I know last uh, year, though, we did allocate money in the budget for this particular fund outside of the 40%, or at the time it was 20% of commercial sales. And so looking forward to an investment on behalf of the city into this fund. And so uh, I will let my colleagues move forward with their questions. But when we come back to the end, I will ask to move this into the executive session as well for further uh, discussion around. So thank you, and we will move over to questions from my colleagues, and I will start with President Pro Tem Tate. Thank you, Madam President. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, just a quick question. I, we have a lot of you know, budget line item questions that we're going to be submitting, so be on the lookout for those. But this is more just kind of general um, overview of the department uh, type of questions. And one is in terms of choice neighborhoods in the city of Detroit. Uh, currently, we have one correct that's in Corktown um, what what's the qualifications for and I've read it on uh, on paper uh, but what are we determined to be the qualifications for a choice neighborhood and are we looking at any uh, additional neighborhoods in the city of Detroit um, to to uh, be able to take part in that opportunity because uh, we, we it's, it's really addressing struggling neighborhoods um, that's what the goal is and Corktown doesn't really feel like that, in my opinion. Um, so there's a number of neighborhoods in the city of Detroit that could fit in that category. Uh, Director Snyder, if you can pull your mic down just a little bit. Yeah, because we can hear you a little bit better. Well, it won't move. Gotcha. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll work on that. Uh, so, through the chair um, to Council President Pro Tem Tate. So Choice Neighborhoods is a program through the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Uh, there's been two awardees in the state of Michigan, one in Flint and one in uh, Detroit. Its stated purpose is to reinvest in declining either assisted or public housing. That's its primary focus. In previous iterations of this type of program, for example, HOPE 6, it, HOPE 6 was really only focused on housing. It, didn't re it also didn't require one-to-one -one replacement which is uh, part of the reason why public housing numbers declined nationally in the uh, 90s. Um, but so Choice Neighborhoods is a different kind of program where it not only require, it has a one-to-one -one replacement requirement, but it also requires investments in the neighborhood. But its primary focus is on, and its primary eligibility point is distressed public housing or distressed assisted housing, HUD-assisted housing. HUD-assisted housing mean, meaning that it was housing that was constructed using particular HUD funding sources and receives um, project-based vouchers through, through HUD. 
Um, so then there's other, the way that I would, if I was advising somebody to look at how to create a successful op grant, you need to look at the application as a standardized test. HUD is trying to compare applications from across the country, um, and they want to see that you are fitting exactly what they what they stated. That changes from from time to time, um, and what they're what they're looking at. So it is something that I think that oh, and the other qualification is it cannot be an old Hope Six development, meaning some of those developments, like for example Parkside, which was one of the first public. Housing developments to go through Hope Six are not eligible for choice neighborhoods, based on the way HUD has that program structured. So I think that as we look to whether or not this is a program that we would pursue in the future, it create it's a it's an incredibly demanding program. We had probably over 20 people in the department working on it for about 18 months. So if you're going to pursue it. You want to be pursuing something that you believe is going to going to win. I think there are other opportunities for us now that we've gone through one and that we're two years into the implementation. We have a much better sense of the, the demands of the program on an ongoing nature. And I think it's appropriate for us to start looking at the, the NOFA at this time and trying to identify where are their developments that would qualify both public housing and assisted and are there neighborhood characteristics? HUD wants to see um, applications where there is a <coughs> lot of neighborhood activity. Yes, they look for distressed neighborhoods, but their, their, their interpretation of a distressed neighborhood in the choice application still requires a substantial amount of private activity to be and investment to be happening in that area for you to get the points necessary to submit a successful application. So it's because HUD wants to invest in places where they don't feel like they're the only ones going in. And so you're trying to identify that balance between distressed neighborhoods, submitting a winning application, and um, places where there's an increased amount of investment that you know will help you to get those points. And so I certainly think that it's we can start looking at a, a neighborhood at this point. We would likely look to apply for a planning grant first. The, the Corktown grant was supported by a planning initiative that we funded. We lost a point on the application because it wasn't one that we had a planning grant for. So in the future, I think we'd look to first do a planning grant and then uh, submit for an implementation grant. What does the timeline look like, though? I, mean, I know I'm just asking you on the fly right now, but hopefully this is something you all had been thinking about. Um, through the chair, it is something that I've been, that I've been thinking about. Um, to submit for the planning grant, the planning grant will likely be open in this spring. So... You have to, then it's a six-month process till you hear back, three three to six months until you hear back from HUD. You have to go through a planning grant, a planning cycle. That looks, that can look like a year before you're even able to submit for the implementation grant. It's a, it's a long, it's an extended process. And it was a similar extended process with Corktown. It's just that we had a planning initiative that was, going on at that time and so we were working on it for we were working on active grant application for 18 months the planning process had started six months prior to that so it's it's um, between a it's like a, it's about a two-year process to 
submit and receive a grant. Got it. And I, I want you, if, if you can, expand a little bit about, I believe the mayor talked about <clears throat> during the state of the city about the single family dwellings now. I mean, we talked about um, affordable housing for uh, Detroiters, and typically they're in apartment buildings. And so now branching out to single family dwellings. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about what, put a little more context around that? What's the plan um, and where are we looking at? Um, yes, uh, through the chair. Most of Detroit's housing stock is, is single family. It has been and, and will likely continue to be for quite some time. We've been working to pro provide a uh, more diversity of housing options um, as we've seen multifamily construction happening in recent years, but certainly understand that uh, the majority of Detroiters are living in, in single-family housing. So uh, we will have a program that we expect to bring to council for consideration that is um, not a part of this budget, but um, through um, other funding sources that we'll look to bring to council to work with nonprofit agencies to repair vacant homes within their neighborhoods and offer them as affordable housing. Um, we've also, through the American Rescue Plan Act, started a program that we also will look to bring to council within the next month for a contract approval to provide um, a, a, a match, a matching program for landlords to, uh, for Detroit-based landlords, for them to achieve a certificate of compliance as well with the understanding that we would look to see those homes uh, rented as affordable homes on an ongoing basis. Um, and so these are these are the kind of first programs we've done on, on this space in a while, but it'll look to debut them in 2023, look to make improvements, learn from them, and continue them in the future. Okay, and again, asking timelines, I know you said look sometime in 2023. I'm sure something's going to be coming before us. Wheels are turning, big announcement. When are we looking at timeline in 2023? Um through the chair in the landlord match program is a, we'll have to counsel in March and the well, this uh, month. Yes. Okay. That's, that's my expectation. That's March 10th, but yeah, it should be, it's, it's ready to be submitted to council. And then the other program I, I expect it'll be on. Uh, we'll, we'll look to begin conversations with you in, in mid April um, after the, the budget process concludes. Thank you. And this is a part two to that, Madam President. Uh, I know that there was a program that was rolled out, and we approved it here in, in council as well, of a second floor residential grant program, and it expires. The well, not it, it doesn't expire, but the application process expires uh, this at the end of this month. What's the status of that program? And and for those who may not know, is to allow for business owners who have second floor. Uh, housing to encourage them to create that into uh, affordable housing units. So what's the status of that? And it's only in Southwest Detroit as well. Yeah. Um, through the chair, a couple of notes on it. Um, a, I, I don't know the actual application rate off the top of my head. So in the past, the program has worked with you. You go, or we go through an intermediary, intermediary that has ties to the that is 
doing business in a particular location along a commercial corridor where there are vacant second floor apartment units. So they can do the proactive outreach with the relationships that they have. I can provide the number on, on where we are as far as applications um, in, in writing. We are looking to expand that program and add a, at least one additional neighborhood. In order to do so, we need to work on expanding capacity of other organizations that are interested and uh, want to operate such a program. So we'll be doing that in 2023 and then look to um, probably do another RFP to identify another neighborhood that we would look to expand that program in 2024. Um, I'm really looking forward to this being a, a successful program. There are quite a few vacant second floor apartment units across the city. It'd be a really uh, great place for us to add affordable housing at a much uh, more reasonable cost than we we are investing when we're investing in, in new housing. So, um, but we are we are already looking to expand that program, and I can provide you the application numbers um, in writing. Thank you. Look forward to that information, and also again be on the lookout for our questions that are coming your way. Appreciate it, and thanks for the work that you and your team do. Thank you, Madam President. Yep. Thank you, President Pro Tim Tate. Councilmember Young. Thank you, Madam President. Schneider, everybody, always good to see you. I wanted to ask you a question about the housing locator. Um, particularly, I just want to know how many people have been used by how many people use that? How many people have been affected by that? I haven't heard a lot about what's going on with that at all. And I know it's more it's needed now more than ever in terms of people trying to find affordable housing. And I read the report that you gave me. Thank you very much for your response, by the way. I think you said it was about, um, there are 13,000 units in the city of Detroit that are serving people at 50% uh, AMI. So we're talking about 30,000, a little over $31,000 a year, depending on what your metric or rubric is. I just wanted to know how many people have been affected by this? How many people have been helped by this? Is it doing what it's supposed to be doing? Should it be doing better? And if it needs to be doing better, how much money would that cost? Uh-oh. It's, it's just okay. I didn't turn it on this time. Um, uh, through the chair to Councilmember Young. So uh, you're referring to the Detroit Home Connect website? Yes. Which uh, launched, went live in 2022. Uh, when it went live, one of the things that we were really trying to do was make sure that we were building the the accuracy of the availability of units on that website, which has required extensive outreach with property managers to make sh to to add that add that work of updating that website as a part of their normal business because um, there's a, a new function um, for them. So we've been working to do that and now have a, a more robust and accurate listing on, on that website. Um, there's over 200 properties on that website, and so I'm trying to get uh, user, user data on it. Um, but I, I know that it's, it's pretty frequently used. Um, I don't know exactly the, the, the number of users that um, we have on that website, but I do know that our nonprofit providers that do help to provide people and link people to affordable housing have, have told us that it's become a really valuable tool in their work in trying to help people identify housing that's within their neighborhoods that has the amenities that they need. 
for example, we spent uh, an ex extended amount of time um, looking to make sure that we were providing information on accessibility features in units. So not just saying, is it an accessible unit, but does it have, does it have grab bars, does it have uh, barrier-free showers, et cetera, so that to provide people more information. Um, my understanding is that we have 400 users with accounts and have um, about 3,000 views. Now that we've built out that, that website more, we're building additional features on it to make sure the usability was um, increased. Um, expect to see those, those numbers increase and we'll certainly be, I think, communicating about it more in the future along with the Detroit Housing Services information so that people know um, where to go. Council recently approved a, an extension in addition to that contract so that we can continue to, to build out and maintain services um, based on the user information. So um, I, I think for the foreseeable future, we are, are that program is funded. Do you give quarterly or annual reports on those type on that type of data? Because I really I really would like to see how many people are using it, how many people are helped with it, where they think about it. And like you said earlier, because you brought up a lot of great points in terms of, you know, this is um, helping people with the amenities that they're looking for. You know, is the ADA compliant? You know, you know how big is it? You know, what's the square? But you know, things that people really want to know. I think that's a good thing, mm -hmm. but I need the data in order to be able to justify, is this something that we need or do we need to go a different route? Do we need to invest more money? Do we need to expand? Do we not? Um, secondly, I wanted to ask you, For it, it, it seems to me, because I'm looking at the goals that the administration set previously, and in, 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 in the 13,000 uh, unit number, it seems to me there, there was a goal that they were trying to preserve 11,000 homes, affordable homes. And then they were trying to build 2,000 homes by this year. It seems they've hit that mark. I want to know what does that look like in terms of is it uh, prefabricate homes, module homes? Are you using 3D printing technology? What does that look like in terms of the overall package? And, and, because of the demand, you know, especially after the pandemic, because the demand of affordable housing, how much more houses do you have to build in order to meet demand from an affordability standard and beyond? I just want a holistic view of how many houses that we have to build, and more importantly, how much is that going to cost? And I, I'm and, I, and from my understanding, it's not going to be a one-year thing. <laughs> So you're probably going to have to do that over the course of so many years because the ARPA funds, we know, is not going to last forever. And so I just want to know, is there a plan, you know, five years of, of how much you're building, where you're building, what kind of houses we can look forward to, what kind of strategies we're using to build more houses and be affordable, and how much is that going to cost and how long is that going to take? I know that's a lot. Um. It is. Uh, yes, but a uh, great question. Um, through the chair to Councilmember Young. So you're correct that we anticipate meeting those goals. In fact, on the new housing construction, I think we anticipate exceeding those goals um, slightly. And so the plan went through 2023, and it was really focused on um, affordable multifamily housing. And the reason that was the case is that 
at the at the time that we were developing that plan, which was 2016, 2017, we were really seeing an increase in investment in multifamily housing in a way that we hadn't really seen in about 20 years, which was we looked at as an opportunity to see how can we make sure that affordable housing is and in the the way multi the way affordable housing is currently being built and has been built in the last really 15 to 20 years through low-income housing tax credits. Low-income housing tax credits really uh, the way that the state program works really focuses on multifamily housing. So we really wanted to release a document, release a strategy, and orient our work around what um, to take advantage of and, and seize the opportunity with some of the increased building activity that we saw going on while also making sure that we were not losing affordable housing as that is, um, we cannot increase the amount of affordable housing if we are losing affordable housing in the meantime. So we've been really working to preserve as well. Uh, in 2023, we're actually gonna begin to look at um, an updated strategy that I believe it's appropriate to really be thinking about affordability overall rather than just multifamily affordable housing. We'll look to be bringing that to council within uh, probably in April. Um, and so looking to answer some of those um, larger questions that you laid out through that work, both with uh, through an engagement process, but also informed by what's happening in the, the marketplace and what the demands are today. No, thank you. I appreciate it because it just makes my job a lot more simple. I'm going out to my constituents and I'm saying, hey, this is the problem. This is what we're doing to solve it. This is how close we are to getting it, or this is how not close we are to getting it, and this is how much it's going to cost. It makes more sense. It's easier for me to explain. I can sell that to my constituents. What I can't sell is they're asking me questions, and I can't answer because I don't have the data. So as soon as you get that to me, I appreciate it. Thank you, Madam President. I'm done. Thank you, Councilmember Young. Councilmember Waters. Thank you, Madam President. So, good morning. I, um, we have a number of questions that we, and we will email them to you. Um, Ms. Snyder, you know, you know, <laughs> oftentimes, you, you know that I have a tremendous amount of frustration when it comes to housing, all these evictions and all these other things that are going on. And and I, and and I believe that is probably a frustration for all of us. Um, and I don't know where, where all the answers lie. I mean, I hear you talk about even with home repairs, you talk about you know the capacity and, and so forth. So I so, so I want to ask you because I'm I'm thinking. What is it that, that what we are doing wrong? Because we have a lot of skilled people in this city, and I don't get why we can't repair more homes. I, I just, you know, I, I, I don't get that. Um, is it that people don't know that this type of work is available uh, here uh, at the city? Then I want to know if, if there's anything that um, you can do to include um, you know, maybe, maybe advertise uh, so that we, we can bring more contractors on on board and have them get registered with the city. Maybe they just don't know this work is available. Um, how much are we actually reaching out to, to labor to take on some of this work? I mean, I just, 
Because what's going to happen is that we, we, we're not going to be able to use all the money. You're going to have to redirect those dollars somewhere else because we've got to be have it done within a certain time frame. And so that's, um, and I'm so passionate about this because we get a lot of telephone calls. Seniors see me out in the, in the community. They want to, you know, know about it. They're like number 400 on the list and so forth, you know. Um, so, um, and I know the age is 62 and over, and I wonder if we could just kind of, and I don't know, I don't know if you can do that. You probably can. I'm not sure if we could make it say, uh, 55 and older or something like that. Maybe I've asked a lot of questions in that one, but I, I just, I'm just looking for answers. Okay. Um, through the chair to Councilmember Waters, I'll answer part of this question, and then Ms. Sigmentovich can answer some some uh, things that I can't answer. So, we have increased production um, by at least 200 units per year within the the last couple of years, and we'll probably double it from 500 to uh, over 900 this this next year. So that would be in uh, about a four-year period of time or three-year period of time going from 200 to 900 we still have to do more and we that means we have to identify additional contractors we have to expand our workforce um, we've done that within the department to help us move um, uh, jobs along more quickly but also expanding contractors so we've done that in a couple of ways um, we've had programs to provide um, lead certification so many of the programs that we have are federally funded Federal funds require um, certain work to be done with lead safe practices, which means we have to build the number of lead safe contractors in the city of Detroit. Um, we've had a contractor fair for several years that Ms. Zygmuntovich can speak to as well, but uh, one of the additional things that we're looking to do um, starting with this year would be to add a contractor development program. So one of the things that we see is that a contractor may have wonderful experience and maybe a, a really strong general carpenter or uh, plumber, et cetera, um, or just uh, able to do general contracting work. But what they don't have the, the experience and haven't really had time to invest in is overall business expansion and administration. And so we see a, a need to do that and we think that by doing investing in that we can help local small contractors expand their business and add, add additional staff, add additional crews to help them do additional work. And I'll um, pause there and let Ms. Zygmuntovich talk about some of the work we've been doing to increase the number of contractors that are on these jobs in the city. Sure. Through the chair to Councilwoman Waters. Um, so just to, to reiterate, I, I hear the question of, of what are we what are we doing wrong what's taking so long and I do want to at least briefly speak to that that um, each funding source requires different requirements um, and they are they are they can be very extensive um, every single home repair that we do it is I wish it was as simple as hosting a meeting putting out an advertisement and having people come to us mm -hmm. um, if it was I, we could we could move mountains 
Um, but every single home repair that we complete is, is an extensive amount of individualized work um, that has to be individualized because not only is the house unique, obviously the household um, is unique. Um, and we want to make sure we're treating our residents with, with the utmost respect and care as we're moving them through that process um, and collecting documents and um, visiting their household and determining what has to be, happen so that we can bid it out um, effectively um, and, and cost um, appropriate so that we can get to as many houses as possible um, and, and all the things that go into actually reviewing the work, ensuring that the work is quality. Um, and, and so I guess I say that to say the way, the way that we can move more home repair is by more strategically looking at how we put that work out. That's what you're seeing changing right now um, is this, this concept of before we're really looking at one application in, it gets approved, and then I'm, I go out to one home. One application in, approved, I go out to that home. That is very, very time intensive. And so what you're starting to see happen and, and what, what is part of this, this restructure and reorg that Director Schneider mentioned at the beginning of this is if we have all the programs together, how can we start thinking about this work more comprehensively so we can put it out strategically, we can make these contracts um, more, more attractive to contractors so that we have more bidders, more people showing up. Um, and the, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, which is you're very passionate about it. I am too. That's why we started that contractors fair five years ago. Um, and now we're engaging with hundreds of contractors every year, telling them this is how you get qualified. These are the opportunities that are available. And like, we're going to have, um, a, almost a $16 million RFP going out in the next two weeks to do that, that renew work, that bulk, um, roofing work. And I've been contacted by more contractors, um, in the last probably two or three months than I have in probably the years I've been at the city. So I, it is a slow-moving process to make those big changes, um, and I think that uh, I, think we're I think we're starting to turn that corner and make some of those big changes, um, but it doesn't mean that we, that we can you know, uh, lay back on our heels and say we do what we're supposed to do. We, got, we have to keep on it. We have to keep on thinking about how do I put out these bids strategically so I'm not only getting large contracts and moving high volume, how am I engaging the smaller contractors and developing smaller contractors so that there are more larger contractors down the road. Um, and I, I think that's just something that we look forward to. I have many conversations with, with all of the council members up there about how much we think about this day in and day out. Um, and I, I hope we continue to do that and, and solve for how do we continue to get more to the table and, and continue to improve. All right. Well, well thank you. Um, you know, when, when we started the uh, Minority Business Task Force, we, we're still registering as many people as possible to do business with the city. And so we're hoping that some of those increases that you see is a, is a result of some of the workshops that we've been doing. Uh, and we want to help in any way possible to continue to increase um, those kinds of things. So um, how many um, housing projects um, do you currently have right now? And how many uh, are you planning to do in, in the future? And then I want to know, and the real part that I really want to know is that What's 30%? How many do you have between 30 and 50%? You know, AMI. Uh, because that's the number that I want to see an increase in. Homes, housing available between 30 and 50%. Um, 
that's the song I want to continue to sing. Um, through the chair to Council Member Waters. So, um, in 2023, we're expecting that 1,081 units of affordable housing will begin construction. It's units, not, not projects. I bring that up because most of the affordable housing developments have housing for households between zero to 60 or sometimes zero to 80 percent of AMI. So it's mixed within those developments. Um, so I'd, focusing on the units, we expect that 1,081 are expected to begin construction this year. Of those, uh, 470, 470 of those units will be between zero and 50% of AMI, which is about um, just a rough calculation. It looks to me about 40% uh, of those units. Uh -huh. The uh, remaining 60% um, to me looks like about um, 40, an additional 40% between 50 and 60. And then maybe we have 42 of the 1,081 units are between 60 and 80. So uh -huh. the, the vast majority of them are, are under 60%, but then about a little less than half are um, 0 to 50% okay. of, of AMI. And so those are the ones that are we, we believe are set to begin construction within this calendar year and are, are working to make that happen um, every day as quickly as possible. And those are kind of spread throughout the city? Yeah, yes. Uh, they're um, in many neighborhoods throughout the city. One of the things that we've really seen in recent years is the really seeing and work outside of the downtown. A lot of that has been because we've been looking to put RFPs out with city-owned commercial land in neighborhoods, really trying to attract um, affordable housing in, in those neighborhoods. Then can you share that list, though? Is, is that good? Could you do that? Um, through the chair, absolutely. I'd right. be happy to share that list. Okay. All right. Thank you, Madam President. All right. Thank you, Councilmember Waters. Councilmember Johnson. Thank you, Madam President, and good morning. Um, thank you so much for being here. I noticed that one of the, when you ran through the list of grants that um, you have and are looking forward to moving into the upcoming fiscal year, that you didn't mention the HUD CDBG DR. Grant, is that something that HRD oversees? Uh, through the chair, yes, HRD oversees that. We'll be working because that program is going to do a lot of uh, plumbing and sewer-related repairs. We'll be working with, with DWSD closely. The total allocation that we've received that is $97 million, but Congress did that in two different uh, two different allocations or appropriations. So they first approved, um, I want to say around 53, 53 million. We submitted an allocation and are awaiting approval. Um, and we should be receiving that within the next uh, 45 days and begin that program later this year. Then uh, we'll also be needing to apply for the, uh, the additional amount that HUD has said that we can apply for, bring us to the 97 million. Uh, total. So um, there was initially, I believe, $10 million that was earmarked for addressing the floodplain uh, issue in Jefferson Chalmers. Uh, that has now been crossed off the list. 
<clears throat> excuse me, that's been crossed off the list, and um, I don't believe those funds have been reallocated, but can you talk a little, a little bit more about whether or not those funds have been reallocated and how you plan to utilize those funds, recognizing that um, we're all aware that, you know, the community asked for the canals to not be closed or to have that temporary closure um, primarily focused on health issues, recognizing that Gross Point has the ability to um, utilize the canal as an outfall, and residents just wanted to have access to the canal, right? So there's still a concern, I believe. There's still an issue of water overflowing when we have heavy rainfalls that um, can still impact the community. And so as we're looking to address that disaster, how are we reallocating the, the $10 million that are still there? Uh, through the chair to Councilmember Johnson, so the CDBGDR appropriation law that was approved and enacted required, because each CDBGDR appropriation that comes from Congress has its own rules, which means you it, like for all of the various disasters that have happened over the years, they Congress puts a different set of rules forward every time they appropriate DR dollars. In our appropriation, it required that 10% of the funds be used for mitigation activities. Uh, additional challenge with HUD dollars is that it restricts your ability to use HUD dollars in a floodplain. Uh, the initial idea as we were supporting the engagement work was uh, we would we would dedicate $10 million to support that work in the Jefferson Chalmers neighborhood to help remove it from a floodplain. Hearing from the community that the, the initial idea wasn't of, of interest to the community, we submitted our plan without um, uh, allocating those funds that were previously identified for the canals. They remain un, unallocated. What we will likely do through our next community engagement process that we have to go through for the additional dollars I mentioned is um, look to see how we are allocating what is now 10% of $97 million. I think our intention is to, to follow and be supportive of the engagement, what comes out of the engagement work um, in, that, in that community. Uh, HRD is certainly not in a position to uh, recommend what is the right thing to do regarding canals and, and sewers, so we are um, there to support and make sure the dollars get spent with under the federal guidelines once um, a solution is identified. Excellent. I appreciate you saying that. Um, I did have the ability to go with a resident to the Michigan Floodplain Conference um, last week, maybe a week and a half ago, uh, and we're really looking to have conversations with FEMA and with EGLE to identify how do we help to uh, get this community out of the floodplain. And so we'll present to you um, some ideas, some suggestions, some thoughts that I think both the community and the administration would be palatable um, to doing to help facilitate that work. So uh, we'll make sure we stay connected to you in that respect. Uh, my second round of questions, I guess, is um, going back to the affordable housing and, and, you know, I've continued to push and support 
affordable home ownership for Detroit residents. Uh, and so Pro Tem Tay talked about the program that was announced at the State of the City. Um, and I believe you mentioned the LIHTC projects that happened uh, in the city some time ago, um, scatter site housing projects. And I know that you're working on um, providing some support for those uh, projects that um, are now like 15 years old. Uh, when I drive throughout District 4, and I'm sure this is probably consistent throughout the entire city, scatter site housing projects have been decimated. I've driven through three areas in District 4, and many of the houses have fire damage. Um, and so I'd like to have a better understanding of where we're going relative to uh, single-family housing and ensuring that we have some affordability for the 30 to 50% AMI Detroiters in that respect, because I know, you know, the focus has been on multi-unit complexes and um, being one of eight children that would have never worked for my mother, for our family. How are we as a city looking to address and provide support um, that is affordable for Detroiters that is accommodating for families? through the chair to Councilmember Johnson. So the single family scattered site, low income housing tax credit, which is not the most easy to remember name, um, are located throughout the city. There's about, I think there's about 1400 like individual units and about 1200 different properties, meaning some are duplexes throughout the city. They are all over, well not all of them, but many of them are over 15 years old. And that's significant because that is the end of their initial affordability period. That is also marks the time when they can be transferred to home ownership. So we've been doing some pilot projects with with Sanair, um and a, um, and and Brightmore and um, uh, those and then Gratiot McDougall. Uh, we've I believe transferred. I think probably around 65 to 70 of those units in the in four in four pilot projects to to home ownership. It's something that we're looking to expand as we think it's a really important opportunity, um, and so doing so by uh, providing support to both help owners develop a transition plan, but also one of the things that we have to do is make sure that we've we identify ways to support those those houses that do not transition to home ownership, that that they're not left to deteriorate, and so um, because they're they're aging, and so reinvestment is needed. I think that um, as far as additional single family home ownership opportunities, I know that we are seeing some uh, starting to encourage some more lower density construction not necessarily single-family single detached homes, but we are having some developments that are maybe townhome style. The cost of construction right now is really prohibitive in multifamily development. It is um, the, the subsidy that we would re be required to put in at, for single-family housing right now with the construction costs they're seeing is about a three times, three times difference. And so with just the limited funding that we have, we're trying to identify are there ways that we can help uh, to have both more lower density than a big multifamily 
building and that we are seeing that those costs are higher than multifamily, but we're trying to support them the best that we can. Um, but um, is we think that the industry as a whole could really be benefit from from new construction techniques that, that we're starting to see in Detroit, but um, when it's costing $400,000, $500,000 to construct, when it's costing $400,000 to construct a multifamily unit, you can imagine that a single family unit is in the five dollars $600 range, which is really difficult for us to subsidize when there's not a LIHTC going to uh, helping out. For multifamily, we can manage those gaps because there is low-income housing tax credit going into those dollars. But there's not that subs that there's not that additional source when it comes to um, single-family, and so it's it's un unfortunately it's not something that we have all the solutions on on right now. Thank you, um, and perhaps that's something to talk to our friends in Lansing about. Um, but I will share with you that I do I've identified a developer uh, who can develop at a much lower rate be just because of some of their practices. So I will share that information with you um, and look forward to working on that project with you. But I also want to stay connected as it relates to the scattered site housing, uh, particularly in District 4, because there are some tremendous challenges there. Um, and I want to see is if there is any viability within the structures that still exist that have been fire damaged um, that may be uh, lower costs to rehabilitate. Not really sure, not really sure of um, just how far gone those properties are, but look forward to having additional conversations, and I do have some additional questions that we will uh, email over. Thank you. Thank you, Madam President. Thank you, Councilmember Johnson. Councilmember Benson. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Director Snyder and your team for being here today. <clears throat> Um, I'm not sure if you addressed this, but looking at your budget, <clears throat> 26, there's a 26% increase for salaries um, from about 9.7, I believe, is to 2.26 or something of that nature, 12.26. Can you just explain why that is? There's also a corresponding increase, I believe, in 10 um, FTEs as per the uh, proposed budget also. And how is that going to impact your, your operations? Uh, through the chair to Councilmember Benson, so when I was going through my remarks, one of the things I was talking about is those additional funding programs that we're responsible for administering. So Choice Neighborhoods, Community Development Block Grant, Disaster Recovery, um, the Home American Rescue Plan Act dollars. Uh, so I mentioned those specifically because those are all HUD programs. And for what the normal, um, for CDBG, the administrative cap is 20%. For those programs, it's five. For choice neighborhoods, it's 5%. For CDBG-DR, it's 5%. And for home, I believe it's it's a little higher at, at 7%. 7 but um, what has happened in the last few years is that our department has really expanded. And it's expanded a lot in programmatic activities. What we haven't, hadn't done until we're requesting in this budget is to um, increase um, uh, request an increase in positions to to support all that work from a compliance and administrative perspective as well as um, those staff in the department that have the that have worked in the department on compliance and administration of our HUD funding are um, retirement eligible so 
I have to also be thinking about this is a very specialized skill set that not a lot of people have. I've got to start making sure I'm building redundancy within the department as well as expanding the capacity to, to manage compliance for our program. So that looks like the community development block grant for administration in the department, which is not is is now totally within the department, whereas previously it was split between HRD as well as the planning and development department. So it's a um, I, I can't speak to the planning department budget, but all CDBG management is now within within HRD. Additionally, there are positions requested for the uh, JET team for the neighborhood economic development team. I believe that is three or four positions. I, when we were going through the um, budget, and actually I'll leave this to um, um, my two colleagues to talk about the, the 10 positions is, I think we maybe identified and um, well I'll let them I'll let them speak to that because I think there might have been a discrepancy um, madam madam yes. I can actually address the the 10 positions so um, one item that's changed with the presentation of the budget is that um, starting in this uh, proposed fiscal year we are showing all of the FTEs of the city even those that are funded by previously appropriated funds so the 10 positions you're seeing in the Bridging Neighborhoods program have always been here, but we've not shown them because they were funded by a previously appropriated grant. So we're showing them on the books now. There's no money to appropriate for that program. It's already appropriated. It has been for a number of years, but these FTEs are showing to give you an accurate count of the number of uh, folks who are working um, in the Housing and Revitalization Department. So that is part of why you're seeing an increase in the FTE count, is a recognition of grant-funded positions that were previously not reflected in the budget presentations, um, but are moving forward. All right, thank you. Anything else on that? Okay, then looking at your presentation on page nine, slide nine, and this is a uh, program that's been very near and dear to my heart for a number of years. It is the 0% interest home repair program. Used to get a number of complaints. Don't get that many complaints uh, to my office any longer, which tells me that the program may be working. Concerned here, saying that it ends or is funded through the end of 2024. But this is one of the programs that allows, depending on where you live in the city, anyone to participate in a very unique program where the city gives 0% interest loans, which means it's free money, and actually it's cheaper money because I borrow money $10,000 today, five years from now, it's worth less. And so I'm actually paying back less than what I borrow. So that's a huge um, opportunity for homeowners to invest in their properties. And also, I just want to make sure that we're encouraging our homeowners because as a 80% city um, of black residents, as a people, that's where we keep our money usually. Our wealth is held in our homes, and you have to invest in your homes. And unfortunately, over the years, banks have made that very difficult, if not impossible. Um, we haven't seen a, an appreciation of our homes on a steady basis over the years. We've had a roller coaster. They'll go up in value, then they'll drop down in value, which making that type of investment not the best one or an attractive investment, but now we're seeing an appreciation in our homes again, bidding wars in neighborhoods which you would never have thought in the third district we're seeing bidding wars. And so it's really imperative that we create an environment where we're encouraging people to invest in their homes. This is one of those tools. How are we looking at that program and what's the 
plan for in the future. Through the chair to Councilmember Benson. So the program was the initial, the zero percent program that we had today was designed in when did I start? designed in about 2014, um, and so uh, we're operating the same iteration of that that program. I think what we've seen is that both because of HUD requirements around around lead practices and, and removing lead from homes, that we think it's appropriate for us to be looking at what's the appropriate version of this program for uh, 2023 and beyond that likely includes, uh, we'd like to examine some combination of, of, of grant and loans being within, um, being available to people based on their needs of both from a financial standpoint as well as from a, a physical condition of the home standpoint. So we're looking to um, reposition this program in, in this year, likely looking, um, putting out an RFP, looking to attract additional philanthropic dollars as this program, in addition to our CDBG, has been supported through philanthropic dollars as well. But the, uh, certainly when you're talking about a 0% interest program when a prime mortgage right now is seven, seven plus percent, let alone a home renovation mortgage or a personal mortgage, I don't, I, I don't actually know, but I would say it's always tends to be at least two, two to 3%, if not more, higher than a, a prime rate. So um, it's, a, it's an important program to make both access uh, affordable and available to people that, that would be denied by banks, um, but also that, that interest rate makes really changes the, the economics of, of receiving a mortgage. So it's a, it's a program that we think is, is important, but we want to make sure that, that we're not relying on a program that was designed now almost 10 years ago mm -hmm. for the housing market today. So we're going to be looking to make some changes, seeking certainly input from, from council as you interact and have uh, engagement with residents and hear their needs so that we can make sure that the program we're designing um, is, is fit for people's needs in the future. And, and are there still unlimited income levels in the nurses within the city for that program? Um, correct. The program works where in certain areas of the city, it allows certain areas of the city that are tend to be have a, a much higher concentration of lower income households where it's typically diffi more difficult to access lending um, so it allows for higher than 80 percent but overall the program must mm -hmm. still serve the majority of the the program must serve households below the uh, 80 percent income threshold but I just want to remind people there are areas of the city where it's, where people are basically being rewarded for staying mm -hmm. despite your income and so it's not in the the less challenging neighborhoods, but in neighborhoods that are more challenging, but if people have stayed there and they have those higher incomes, they're still eligible for that program, which is also huge. And then one last item, um, and this is where I will be supporting moving the HRD budget into closing into the executive session and asking for a, uh, a line item in the closing resolution, uh, the CDBG staff. And so when they were here before council, less than a, a, a convivial um, engagement with that staff here at this table. And I've seen that type of engagement with the clients who apply for CDBG grants as well, which is disturbing to me. 
And so I believe the CBG staff could benefit from some customer service training and remembering that the clients, those who actually are applying for these CBG grants, are the clients. You all work for them. They don't work for you. And so having condescending or argumentative or just aggressive conversations with our clients is not helpful and may be it may not support people wanting to apply for CDBG in the future. And then suggesting that council members should not vote on the CDBG allocation is also very disturbing when we are required by law to vote unless there is some type of financial benefit to that council member. And so for me, that was concerning. I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page, we're rowing in the same direction, and that we realize that CDBG clients, applicants are our bosses. We work for them and should always be looking to be encouraging and supportive despite any problems they may have applying and their own deficiencies. We should be working always to get them up to speed and wanting them to continue to apply. And so when the, also the comment comes back, well, if they didn't make it, you should just simply encourage those residents in that area to go find another uh, service provider. If I'm sending my children somewhere, if I have a long-term relationship, I just don't want to send my kids anywhere. If I am a low-income resident who is typically served by CDBG funds, I am also a very vulnerable resident, as are my children. If I have a relationship with somebody, I hold that dear. I want to make sure my kids are being served. And, and my kids are just not just a commodity. They're actually my children, and I love them, and I'm hoping that we can see that, that the kids in the city of Detroit are not just commodities to be shopped around to any service provider. I want to make sure that we are creating long-term relationships with those who support our children, and we, and we as an organization as a city support that. And so I'm going to request that we encourage the CDBG staff to receive customer service training the same way that BC has received customer service training, the same way the health department is committed to having its inspectors receive that training, I think there will be benefit there. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mayor Benson. All right. Did you want a response from Director Schneider? Director Schneider? Um, I think that as a public servant, uh, through the chair, I mean, um, I'm happy to support customer service training for my entire staff um, as as public servants. Our job is to, to serve the public. We deal with complicated programs. We need to make sure that we're um, speaking from the, the same level of information and, and not expecting people to understand our programs at the same level that, that we do. So happy to support that and we'll continue to, to try to make those improvements. Has the budget been put into a closing session? Um, not yet. I do have several items I want to move to executive session. Mm -hmm. So I was going to wait to the end to do so. But if you want to make a motion on that part, you want that in the closing resolution? I do want that in closing okay. resolution. Okay. Uh, motion to put in the closing resolution customer service training for the HRD CDBG staff. Uh, discussion on the motion before you approve. Yes, Director Schneider, did you have something to state? I was just going to add that I believe this budget does include an increase in funding for for training. Um, so we'll certainly take take this into consideration as we're putting that training plan together. All right, great. Thank you. All right, Member Benson has made a motion. Any objections? Hearing none, that motion will be approved. Thank you, Council Member Benson. Council Member uh, Dorhaw. 
Thank you, Madam President. Good morning uh, to you all. I'm glad to see on page 13 the down payment assistance program uh, coming from MISTA. Uh, that was a huge program, particularly as we talk about creating general wealth, uh, generational wealth and kind of uh, transitioning folks who are renters to becoming first-time homeowners. Uh, and so that's huge. You know, often that down payment uh, is something that provide that is a barrier that exists uh, because of access to funding or access to capital. The banks don't uh, generally loan all the time to folks uh, who come from low-income backgrounds. And so I'm glad to see that. My question revolves around that program. What does that down payment program look like? Is it similar to like a Mr. program or keys to home homers, uh, keys to home ownership? Uh, what is the amount that will be provided for down payment? Uh, and what are some of the criteria uh, that exists with that for residents? Um, through the chair to mm -hmm. Councilmember Durhall. So we're expecting to make an announcement in in April with all of the the final program. Uh, details announced at that time. The program will be uh, certainly modeled after other down payment assistance programs, but given that interest rates are seven, seven and a half percent right now, and likely going to at least remain at that place in the the foreseeable future, if they're not at seven and a half, they're they're still going to be rather high, um, even if they're a little bit lower. Um, we're looking to the MISHTA program is about seventy five hundred. This program will be substantially larger than that, uh, and it uh, potentially allows for um, some interest rate reductions, so which is a little bit different than, than the MISHTA program. I'm just being a little, um, we haven't announced the number. We've been starting to get calls, but the program's not available yet. The program won't be available until, until early April, so I wanna make sure that when we do announce it to the public that, that we're giving them all of the kind of the, the final details um, to not kind of, I don't want to create any confusion, but it's a program that we are very much looking forward to. We have $5.9 million in loan capital. We also have funding available to support um, home ownership programs and home ownership training as well as credit repair. And so if you're a person who's not sure whether or not they're gonna, gonna qualify. We wanna make sure that we're creating the support system necessary to help you qualify um, during the, the duration of the program. And that's available through the, the Detroit Housing Network um, service providers and our financial and, and empowerment center counselors as well. And, and, and that's, I'm, glad, I'm glad to hear that as the, as the program gets ready to roll out, uh, obviously love to hear more about that program. Um, and, and it's in my hope that it can also be used in conjunction with other programs. Uh, I know Mr. again provides $7,500 uh, for that, uh, but it'd be great if it's connected. You can utilize both programs to have a higher down payment to be able to uh, get the house that you want as opposed to a house that uh, it's just in your price range, right? Uh, and so uh, very interested to hear more about that. My, uh, you want to add something else? Pardon me. Uh, Director Smith? Excuse me. That is actually the one of the final details that we're working out currently is how to make the two programs work together. So certainly on our minds, but that's why I want to be a little hesitant announcing all the details because we're still <coughs> working out some very important ones at this time. Okay. And, and, and glad to hear that also with the credit repair and everything attached to it. My second question uh, is dealing, and Council President kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, 
uh, and I'm sure one of my residents from District 7, Ms. Burner, will be happy I'm asking this question as well. When we talk about uh, our disabled residents uh, and we talk about home repair, uh, generally when we talk about home repair, folks just think about roofs, uh, they think about steps, uh, but what are we looking at relative to inside the home? So when we talk about fixing bathrooms to ensure that accessibility exists, widening uh, hallways that are narrow uh, to provide railing uh, to help residents who, again, uh, need that type of assistance. Uh, what are we looking at in that regard? I know there are some limitations relative to uh, what we can do, uh, but, and, and folks say, okay, well, this is ADA compliant, but necessarily being ADA compliant is not always accessible as well. Uh, what are we looking uh, forward to doing uh, to kind of address that issue uh, for seniors and for uh, those of our disabled community, again, who need the help inside the house to get their homes retrofit, uh, retrofitted uh, so it is accessible to them? Through the chair, thank you for uh, to Councilmember Durholth, thank you for uh, bringing this subject up. So, 20%, nearly 20% of Detroiters report having some some disability. Not all are are uh, there's different disabilities that people report, but certainly they affect people's um, ability to to navigate their own personal spaces. And having a, a safe, secure place to to wake up and go to every day and it is incredibly important. So um, we're working to do the accessibility repair program that, that I mentioned. We're also going to be doing um, a, a survey and study to understand the kind of current environment of affordable accessible housing. One of the things I want to note is that 90% of our, our housing stack was built before 1990. It's an important date because when the, the law started to change around accessibility, they changed after the majority of our housing stack was created. So it's one thing for us to be looking at universal design, which is a kind of growing field that still isn't necessarily totally sorted out. Think of it as the, the, the green program criteria is before they the kind of industry started to settle on that. That's kind of where the universal design industry is. But if we only focus on that, we're missing 90% of our housing stock um, that we really need to be looking at how do we support reasonable accommodation and that requires us to know more about what the needs of our residents are and, and what they're, how they're experiencing um, both finding accessible housing and, and pursuing reasonable accommodation requests. So those are the things that we're, we're aiming to do um, in this year, and I think that based on the um, both needs of the population that we have now, as well as we have a, a aging population, that's certainly something that we're gonna have to um, continue to put a, a lot of effort and work into going forward as well. well and, and again, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Um, you know, I just wanna ensure that when we talk about that, uh, to your point, We've got over 130,000 folks who are disabled in our region alone. Uh, and so when we talk about 90% of the housing stock built before uh, the 90s or, or before that, I know we're asking tough questions of new developers who come build new projects, uh, stating that, hey, we want to see more in the accessibility uh, range or accessibility area. Uh, but that, again, that doesn't help the residents before that. So I'd like for us to take a deeper approach to look at that. And I'm not under any impression that it's going to be done overnight. 
when we talk about retrofitting homes uh, to that, to your point, to that universal design, which which is changing, is ever so changing as well. But we've got to start somewhere, um, and, and so I'll be interested to have conversations offline uh, for that as well with some ideas that we may have and, and recommendations that have come from the Disability Task Force. So thank you, Madam President. Thank you, Member Durhall, Councilmember Callaway. Um, thank you, Madam Chair, and good morning to you all. Um, cities across the country, including Dallas, New York, um, and countless others have recognized that one growing solution to the housing shortage is the adaptive reuse of vacant office spaces into affordable housing. Now, I mentioned this last week during the District Detroit um, um, session that I participated in. And um, one of my concerns was when new office spaces are built, um, then the older office spaces are uh, ordinarily, typically vacated. And then they become vacant, they become dilapidated, um, no one's using them anymore, they become neglected, and eventually demolished. And I'm hoping that doesn't happen um, in the downtown area when the new shiny buildings are built. Um, but this solution has become more prevalent as remote work has left more and more office buildings vacant. And my question is, would adaptive reuse of vacant offices converted to residential units help provide more housing in your opinion? And if so, do you have a redapt, adaptive reuse plan? If so, I'd like for you to tell me about it. If not, then will you plan to have one? Because this is like the wave of the future with using, you know, um, converting office spaces to affordable housing. Through the chair to Councilmember Whitfield Calloway. So uh, to date, our work and focus on adaptive reuse has really focused on um, uh, different types of properties. It's, that's been the, prior to the pandemic, really been where the predominance of our uh, vacant buildings um, were, and especially in neighborhoods. Um, I, there are conversations happening at the state level around uh, programs that to incentivize this type of transition. And it's, I think that that's got to be a part of the funding picture as if you think about office buildings, there's a lot of interior space. So apartment buildings tend to, they either are going to be more narrow or they have those kinds of little cutout garden areas because you're trying to make sure that you're getting more natural light in. Office buildings are often large squares, and so you have to figure out what to do with the interior space as well as the plumbing needs or plumbing and electrical needs are very different than an office space. So the, the cost is is quite high. Mm -hmm. I believe there are conversations happening at the state at the state level. Those are things that we would certainly look to partner with. Um, I think that as far as our ability to support that type of conversion, I think we certainly can do on the uh, development, permitting process. As far as funding is concerned, that's certainly something that we would we would look look to see how we can support it, depending upon, you know, size of building, whether or not our, how much our funds can, can support, um, depending on the, the size of buildings. But certainly something that we're open to, and I think would be able to support at the, the state level um, as well. So um, it's, I think, a, a growing field is certainly something I think that could be successful in Detroit, but it's not something that getting a, 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 some inquiries on not um, 
the overwhelming nature of it. And I think that that's because there's got to be some changes kind of at the, at the state level um, to incentivize that type of major, major conversion. Yeah. Um, and through the chair, to that point, so are you saying you are hearing conversations at the state level? Are you getting in touch with those folks who are having those conversations so we can get the information that we need so we can take action, Ms. Schneider? Um, th through the chair, I, those conversations have kind of s started. We've been somewhat engaged in them, have been supportive of them, but I haven't seen them progressing at a really kind of advanced, advanced rate. I think that's partly we've had some some legislative change as well. So looking to work with the new the new legislators and a new configuration of the, the state legislative body now. Um, so I, some of the conversations we were having were with the kind of last. Um, I'm sorry. I didn't hear you. With the previous legis legislative body. I didn't hear what you said. Um, I'm sorry. The um, sorry. I sp wasn't speaking into the microphone. Um, the we were having some conversations in 2022. Legislatures have changed, and so um, resuming those conversations with the, the new, newly seated, newishly seated um, legislators. Yeah, I'm hoping through the chair. I'm hoping we'll um, re-engage in those conversations because we're going to have. We already have a lot of vacant spaces in downtown Detroit. I and mean, if you just walk down where you can see, if you go to the Renaissance Center, I think we got one restaurant, maybe two over there. And I remember I was reading the city council minutes um, when the DDA was established. It's like a 300-page document from May of 1976. So I know the exact borders of the original DDA, and I know that we were supposed to have a downtown enclosed mall to compete with what was happening in the suburbs. 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 <laughs> and I remember um, we always talk about white flight happening in the 1970s, but originally started in the 1950s. So I've read that entire document. So I have a better understanding of the original intent of the DDA. And I know for a fact they had the conversation that we're having now. They were very concerned about the Renaissance Center, which was the main tax generator at the time when it was built. It pulled, and Ms. Williams, you're shaking your head. It pulled from all the other office buildings. And a lot of office buildings were demolished because of the Renaissance Center because the Renaissance Center became the, the main tax generator for the city. You know what I'm talking about. So we're back to where we started from. So I'm hoping they were having this conversation 40-something years ago. I'm certainly hoping that we will um, think about the office buildings that are going to be vacated um, and being vacated right now for a number of reasons, the new shiny buildings that are going up in the, up the remote work. So I'm hoping we'll look at that um, um, adaptive reuse plan so these, these buildings are not going to become neglected and eventually demolished and all the history that um, are contained in those buildings. My second question is grants are an important part of HRD's function and from our understanding highly competitive. How can HRD build out its capacity to capture more grants and would this um, require an additional FTE? And it goes back to what you were saying earlier um, with the federal grants being very, very competitive. Do you think you should have one person concentrating on pursuing those types of grants so we can get more? Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Ms. Schneider. And I'll wait to um, hear your answer to that question. Um, through the chair to Councilmember Whitfield Calloway, um, they are absolutely an important part of our work. They, we have the, the lead hazard grants, which we go after um, whenever they're available, as we have 
so many homes that have um, lead within within them based on when they were constructed, um, the Choice Neighborhoods Grant, et cetera. So there's, in addition to the, the, the I talked about adding some CDBG staff for CDBG compliance staff. One of the things that we're also doing is, is adding um, folks who are working on the more kind of programmatic um, improvement and programmatic management side. They're, they sit in more of the, the policy space that we have, and that's who we have really looking at those types of things. We're adding two staff in that, in that area because I think there is a need not only for what you're speaking about, but um, I want to make sure that residents know exactly what we're doing when it comes to our investments in affordable housing and compliance, and so really also looking to uh, make sure that we're dedicated to increasing the reporting and transparency to the public. So those kinds of things are going together um, in, in the future work with the department. Thank you. And thank you, um, Ms. Schneider. Madam Chair, I'd like to move the um, adaptive reuse of vacant office spaces to the executive session. Motion has been made. Any objections? Hearing none, that motion will be approved. Thank you, Member Calloway. And before you leave, Director Schneider, I do have a couple of, mo well, one motion I would like to make, but I wanted to get clarity on something that we talk about all the time, and that is the compliance of the commitments that are made regarding affordable housing. It is something that I raise every single budget, and I'm looking forward to taking the issue up with CREO. One, just making sure that income is actually being verified. So we can set aside units at a certain amount or rent, uh, but if people's actual incomes are not being verified, we're not getting to the intent of what we're looking for. Uh, and so I just wanted to make sure, I know we talked about possibly moving some abatement or compliance of housing commitments into uh, HRD. Is that reflected in this current budget? or not um, through the chair so or, or to the chair um, so yes the and the we're going to be transitioning that work uh, into HRD to take advantage of like the subject matter expertise that we have around affordable housing from uh, two perspectives one we actually have a, a, a vendor that we utilize to do compliance with our existing portfolio of affordable housing that we invest in, doing income certifications, um, handling the personally identifiable information. We'd be looking to um, add to that contract. Um, we would also be looking to um, add a staff member to uh, manage that program, manage that compliance, but also, again, make sure that we're communicating consistently and well to the public. Um, I believe that is within the, um, the the additional CDBG staff we have in coming in on compliance and reporting. Okay, thank you. And um, definitely want to take that up, a, a deeper dive into the compliance of the affordable housing commitments. And so I would like to make a motion, colleagues, if there is support for this, to add to executive session the housing abatement monitoring the Housing and Development Preservation Trust Fund, and also the Coordinated Assessment Management System, which is our CAM system dealing with homelessness. From my understanding, Southwest Solution is no longer taking on that responsibility, and there may be a need for additional funding for the CAM system. So is there a motion to add those three items to our executive session? Motion. All right. Hearing no objections, that motion is approved. And if there is no further questions or concerns from my colleagues, thank you so much, Director. 
and we will conclude our housing. Yes, member Young. I'm sorry for this uh, late edition, but I just wanted to add um, 3D printing to um, uh, uh, closing resolution. Motion. Yes, I make. I would like to make a motion to add uh, 3D printing to closing resolution. All right, motion has been made to add 3D printing to the closing resolution. In, do you want us to finish the vote? Or you oh, need? I'm sorry. Okay, any objections? Hearing none, that motion is approved. Yes, Mr. I just Whitaker. wanted to get some clarity. I assume you mean 3D housing? Yeah, I'm sorry. Let, let, let me be perfectly clear. Thank you for that uh, question. Yes, I mean, 3D, I mean 3D housing. The reason why I'm moving it to close a resolution instead of an executive session is because I think you're going to have to go through the contractor route. And so I, I know there's a, a company called Icon in Texas that have printed out entire neighborhoods. And so basically what I'm talking about is something that you're printing out homes that are that are 30 to 40% cheaper, that last longer, that are built better. And you're, built, and you're printing more of them. And so I think it's just the use of technology that we can use to solve, you know, the, or at least to contribute to solving the uh, affordable housing crisis. And there's, also, there's already a company called Citizens Robotics, which is building affordable housing, which is literally right across the street from my house. And so I think that this is a tool that we can use, and they're doing this in Texas and other places. And so I think that's something I want to work with the administration on, using my contacts to bring them to the fore as well. But I don't think that's not going to be something that's going to be done through council. I think it's going to be originally initiated through the administration. All right. Thank you. All right. That motion is approved. And, again, thank you all for being here. Looking forward to the responses and uh, the continued work. All right. Thank you so much. We're going to go straight to our next budget hearing, and that is for the Detroit Building Authority. All of the representatives have joined us online for this hearing. We can please make sure they are promoted. Excellent job. Madam President, I don't see the attendees online right now. We're contacting them. Okay, we are about an hour behind. Um, so maybe they 